chapter 5, Hebrews chapter 5, and give me a thumbs up there, little buddy, when we're, we're online there. Hebrews chapter 5. Got an interesting task tonight. What we're going to do is last week, uh, to no fault of their own, thank you, Emily, uh, to no fault of their own, uh, it didn't get recorded last week, and we do have some people who like to follow the Hebrews series that are there, so I'm not going to re-preach last week's message, but uh, I will go over uh, some of the verses that we went over, just kind of a high level, but it's also, it's fitting to do it because it'll give us a good on-ramp tonight to our, our main topic. And, but starting really in this chapter 3, verse 1 of Hebrews, it says, Wherefore, holy brethren, and I, I apologize if I'm going to be fast, I, I really am, but uh, I'm going to go through it. Chapter 3, verse 1, Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus. This one sentence, he sets up the, the two topics that he's going to be talking about the next two chapters. First of all, the apostle, and then our high priest. So with the apostles, that Jesus is the greater apostle. Jesus, and then he compared uh, Jesus with Moses and with Joshua. Now you can call the Old Testament, Moses and Joshua, Old Testament apostles. Uh, it just means one sent from God, a messenger sent from God. Then he compares Jesus as greater than Moses because Moses was faithful in all his house and faithful servant for what he did. But Jesus is greater. He's the builder of the house. And also notice in verse 6 of chapter 3, here's also a major thread that's going through. But Christ as a son over his own house, whose house are we if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end. We're going to see this term, if we hold fast, uh, all throughout here. And it's going to be a major teaching point. Now, uh, we, we re one of the things with Hebrews that I've, I've actually loved doing is to make sense as, as we go forward, we see how it connects with what he's already said in the, back, in, in the past. And you'll see these connection points all through it, and it'll help you to gain a bigger perspective of what he's, he's saying in Hebrews. We've seen several warnings. We've seen the comparisons of Christ as the better. Uh, they're comparators. You know, he says he's better, he's better, he's better than this, he's better than that. And so the next apostle that he talks about is Joshua and how Joshua had led the, the children of Israel into the promised land, considered the rest, but it was not the actual rest of God, as we see in verse uh, 8. For if Jesus, and that word is Jesus, it means Joshua, uh, they translated it Jesus here. There's another place they translate Jesus instead of Joshua, but it means Joshua. For if Joshua had given them rest, then would he not afterward have spoken of another day? Therefore remaineth therefore a, I'm sorry, there remaineth therefore a rest to the people of God. So even when Joshua brought Israel into Canaan land, there still remained a rest to have. And that's what he says in verse 10, for he that is entered into his rest, he also has ceased from his own works as God did from his. Let us labor therefore to enter into that rest, lest any man fall 
after the same example of unbelief. Now look back up, I'm, that was chapter 4, but, but look at chapter 3, verse 14. Here we see the thread connected again. Chapter 3, verse 14, For we are made partakers of Christ if we hold. We see that phrase again. If we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end. In verse 6, he said, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing. So all of this thrust that he's talking about is keep trusting Christ. Keep trusting in him. Uh, do not turn away from him. Don't let occasions make you turn from him. Now we know uh, we're safe and secure in Christ and we know we're being sanctified and it's by his power. But at the same time, we experience faith, don't we, as, as God's people. So let's keep trusting in him. And he who endures to the end shall be saved. That's taught throughout all the word of God. We, we looked at that once before as a warning. Uh, be warned. It's, it's not, nowhere in the scriptures does it say this one-time profession that you've made is the actual salvation. Uh, it, if, it were, if it was true profession, it would be. A true profession of faith has a perpetuity, it has a succession that you are persevering in the faith. And so let's be careful that we evaluate that uh, from our profession of faith. Yeah, I I was, came before the church when I was 12, and, and then I was baptized, but I haven't been back to church since, and uh, I don't think of God any at all, or nothing that I do is, I feel is wrong, or there's nothing nagging at me. That, that should be a red flag, uh, that there's no perseverance of faith. So that profession wasn't from a true conversion, because... If we profess him in true faith, we will hold fast. We will continue. We will be confident in rejoicing as the word of God is teaching us. So the next part that we see, and this is where I wanted to start. Now, verse 12 through 16, I'm going to read these verses and briefly go over them. The, the new ground we've not gone over yet is chapter 5, verse 1. But like I said, it connects here. So it's actually pretty beneficial to us tonight to read these again. So verse 12, for the word of chapter 4, for the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. So coming from verse 11, he said, let us labor. Let us labor in the, the work of faith to enter into that rest. And that rest is present tense. Lest any man fall after the example of unbelief that he talked about those in the wilderness who fell because of unbelief. They disobeyed because of unbelief. Why? Verse 12 tells us why. For the word of God is quick. That means it's alive. Remember Sunday I said the word of God is alive. It's the only book that is alive. It's the word of God. It's alive. It's powerful. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. When we read the word of God, don't you find this to be true? That it pierces our hearts and it divides asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow and is a discerner. That word discerner is interesting in the Greek. It means it's a critic. The word of God is a critic 
of the thoughts and intents of your heart. It's a perfect critic. And so there's an honest faith which we need to realize that the word of God is honest with us. And, you know, the Lord knows you. <laughs> he knows you better than you know you. He knows our hearts. He knows our motivations. He knows the intents of our hearts. And through the word of God, aren't we fueled and, and, and feel the presence of the Lord just and the Holy Spirit convicting us? You know, I was thinking about this. You know, the Lord, just like Psalm 139, he knows us. He knows our, our, when we go to bed. He knows when we raise up. If we were to go to the edge of the world, he would be there. Everywhere we go, he's there. You know, he knows us so much, we know the things that we don't know. He knows what would you do in a situation you've never had. He knows uh, of situations that you've not had yet. Isn't that something, how amazing God's knowledge is? He knows what doesn't exist. <laughs> not only what does exist, but what doesn't. He has total knowledge, and he knows our hearts. So when we labor into his rest in faith, let's be honest, with our heart, because in verse 13, he follows up that concept with, neither is there any creature that is not manifest, that means revealed in his sight. But all things are naked and open unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. After I read the, these verses, I was praying and I was like, Lord, you know my heart. You know what I'm thinking. You know what my motives are. Just, Lord, help me to keep those pure. Help me to keep those to your glory and your glory only in my heart, in my life. Because the Lord knows our weaknesses. He knows where we're tempted. He knows when we have pride. He knows. So, Lord, help me. The Lord knows you more than, again, you know yourself. All right. Verse 14 now we've gone to the second subject of chapter 3, verse 1. We've talked about the apostles, Moses, Joshua. Then he talked about having true faith and entering into his rest. And now he's going to talk about our high priest of our profession. Verse 14 of chapter 4. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. So he brings up Jesus as our great high priest. Now, if you remember the high priests in the Old Testament, what they would do is they would have the blood once a year. The, the high priest would have blood and he would pass through the areas to get into the Holy of Holies. So he'd go through the outer court, inner court, and then the Holy of Holies or the holy place and then the Holy of Holies. And he would go within the veil. And only the high priest could go into the veil. And God said that he would come down once a year in a pillar, a cloud, as his Shekinah glory. And that he would be there in the presence. So he would more or less be on his throne. The, the altar, the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat. So the high priest would go in. They can only do once a year. And they had to have, always have the blood, and they had to keep moving. They couldn't sit down at all. But look what he says in verse 14. 
What has Jesus done? Seeing that, he, that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens. He's in the very presence of God. He's continually in his presence. Jesus the Son, let us hold fast our profession. Now, holding fast, as we saw that word last week, holding fast means to hold on. <laughs> Don't let it go. And the, that we experience it, us holding on to Jesus, but we know that it's Jesus holding on to us. It's like the child jumping in the pool with the parent. You know, the, the parent is saying, trust me, trust me, just jump in, I'll catch you, I'll catch you. And so the child jumps in believing. And then the child, as you see, I don't know about you all, but they would hug me tight like a death grip. The experience to the child, they're holding on to the parent. But really, we know that it's the parent that has got a hold of the child the whole time. So that is us holding fast. So what are we holding fast to? Our profession. So what, is that, what does that mean? Our profession is in two different ways. Our profession is objectively the object of our profession. The object of our profession is Jesus Christ. The subject of our profession is what we are professing what's in our heart. So our profession is, is this is in my heart. I profess my love to you. So uh, April, for example, uh, objectively, my uh, profession is April. Subjectively, what am I professing? My love for her. So he's saying, hold fast to your profession. Your profession of faith in Jesus Christ. He's the object of our profession, and he's the love that we have in our hearts. So we profess him with our mouth. You can't help but profess him with your mouth. He is, I mean, like, like, like we saw last week, uh, Jesus is just the sweetest name I know. And he's just, as, he's just lovely. And even if there wasn't a hell to be saved from, isn't it great? that the salvation you have, the relationship you have with Jesus today, it's a love relationship. Uh, one time, I don't know if y'all know Herschel York, but we were, uh, I was young and growing up, he, he'd always kind of give me little mind uh, things and uh, I was young and it definitely would keep going over my head. So one day, April and I had just started dating and we, and we were somewhere and, and he was there too. And he goes, Philip, how's your love life? I hadn't seen the man in like eight years. And so I've got April right next to me. And I was like, uh, I got her right here. And he kind of looked at me like, man, I, I don't know. if Is that what you meant? <laughs> he had just preached on a sermon on your love for Christ. How's your love life? And, and I have never forgotten that. To, to this day, I should have said, you know what? I'm in love with the Lord, and I love Jesus, and I'm in love with the man, Christ Jesus. Aren't we in love with the man, Christ Jesus? And he's the greatest man you know. Isn't he the most amazing person you know? And even if there wasn't a hell to be saved from, don't you still want to be with him? Yeah. Yeah, that's our Jesus. And so... In verse 14, he's the son of God. Let us hold fast our profession of him. 
Verse 15, for we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was on all points tempted like we are, yet without sin. That be touched with the feeling is one word in the Greek. It's sympathio. He has sympathy. Because he took on our flesh, he was tempted like we are. He carried the burden of human flesh. It's just a burden sometimes being a human, isn't it? Getting older, having stress, having darkness in your life, having love and loss, and and you worry about your children. And uh, every time Emily goes out the door, I, I have to keep checking the word, see where she's at, and I just. If anything were to happen to her, I, you know, I don't know what I'd do. And just the, that kind of, that burden. But he went through all of that. There is not one thing you can say about a man that you can't say about Jesus, except that Jesus had no sin. And he was tempted in every point like we were, yet with no sin. He is touched he, has, he sympathizes. Sympathizes as he takes on your feelings. And no one understands you like Jesus. You know, I love you, and the, the Word of God tells me that, and tells all of us to bear ye one another's burdens and, and to love one another, pray for one another, lift you up. But I can't relate to whatever you may be going through. I can on some things, but I'm probably not on most things. There's only one who can, and that's Jesus, and that's the Lord. So because of this, in verse 15, he was tempted in all points, like as we are yet without sin. So what's the conclusion? Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Uh, Hebrews is written beautifully. He, in verse 16, he summed up those, those two previous points. Let us therefore come boldly into the throne of grace. Why? Because Jesus is our great high priest who has passed into the very presence of God. He passed into the presence of God with the blood. He doesn't have to do it once a year. He only did it once. He doesn't have to keep moving. He has sat down forever on the right hand of the majesty on high. And he forever intercedes for us. So therefore, in verse 16, we have access. The veil has been split. So we can walk right into the very throne room of God, into the very presence of God, into his Shekinah glory, through our great high priest, and to that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need because, because he is touched with our infirmities. Because he feels your grief. He feels your sorrow. He feels your pain. He feels your fear. He feels all of those things that battle us and burden us. So chapter 5. Chapter 5. It actually goes into verse 10, and we're going to try and get to verse 10 tonight. So in chapter 4, 14 through 16, 
it told us, it states that we should hold fast, our, hold fast our confession and draw near to God where we receive grace and help in our time of need. But in chapter 5, verse 1 through 10, it explains why we should hold fast our profession. In 14 through 16, it tells us that we should. And in 1 through 10, it tells us why we should. Okay? So in chapter 5, verse 1, actually this, this is, I'm going to read all 10 of these verses. For every high priest taken from among men is ordained for men in things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins, who can have compassion on the ignorant and on them that are out of the way, for that he himself also is compassed with infirmity. And by reason hereof he ought, as for the people, he also for himself to offer for sins. And no man taketh this honor unto himself, but he that is called of God, as was Aaron. So also Christ glorified not himself to be made an high priest, but he that said unto him, Thou art my son, today have I, have I begotten thee. As he saith also in another place, Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death and was heard in that he feared. Though he were a son, yet he learned, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him called of God and a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Let's ask the Lord to bless his word. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for this night. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to come. We thank you, Father, that we have access into your very presence through Jesus Christ, and his blood, his finished work. Father, we pray for the hearts that are heavy tonight, that you would just uplift them in a way that only you can that you will draw them closer to you. Father, we love you. We thank you for your promises, how we stand upon the sure word of your promises. We give you all the praise and the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. So this high priest that he's talking about in chapter 5, it, verses 1 through 4, he's talking about the priests after the order of man the priest that was on earth. And verses 5 through 10, he compares that to Jesus. Now what's interesting, like I said, it's, it's written beautifully. The literature is written beautifully. In verse 1, he's talking about the old office of the high priest, of, of being a man. And, and then, so if one's here and ten's here, what we just read, here's man in the high priest's office, and here's Jesus in verses 9 through 10, he compares those two. And then in verse 2 through 3, he talks about the relatability of the high priest to those whom he's offers, offering the sins for in verses 2 through 3. And then he compares that with Jesus Christ in the next section in verses 7 through 8. And then in verse 7, in verse 4, he then talks about the appointment of the high priest is by God. And then guess where he starts to compare Christ? Verse 5. So he works his way out and comes in with the comparisons. And it's just 
a, a beautiful way that he's written this. So he's comparing the priesthood of the man with the priesthood of Jesus Christ. And we're going to look at this. First of all, in verse 1, this high priest is taken among men. That's important. The high priest wasn't an angel. The high priest wasn't somebody. Now remember, a high priest is a mediator between God and man. That the priest represents um, men to God. A prophet represents God to man. A priest, well, and this priest took the sins of the people there. And so it must have been a man who was the high priest. It had to be a man. And it's always a man that we see that God has ordained. So he has ordained among the men, four men in things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. And we know that about the, in the Old Testament, the high priest, the, all of the sacrifices which were given, the grain offerings, the thanksgiving offering, fellowship offering, burn offerings. And then he would offer sacrifices for sin specifically. There you had the burnt and sent offerings, the peace offerings, transgression offerings. But all of these picture in the Old Testament what Christ would do. The just for the unjust. We know the sacrifices had to be the pure. It had to be the innocent for the guilty. And that all of that pictured in the Old Testament everything that Jesus would do. He would be the innocent for the guilty. He would be the just for the unjust. And so he would sacrifice himself. And all of those Old Testament sacrifices, not only were they worship, it was a worship service to God, but it was also of thanksgiving, and it was also to appease the wrath of God. And that's what Jesus has done. As he himself is a sacrifice. He has done all of those things. And so he has appeased the wrath of God. Now, there'll be more about the burnt offerings and the, the Old Testament sacrifices when we get a little bit further in chapter 9 in Hebrews chapter 9. All right, verse 2. Now he talks about the relatability of the priest to the people. Who can have compassion on the ignorant and on them that are out of the way for they for that he himself also is compassed with infirmity. So the priest himself is also has this weakness. Now, infirmity means weakness. And so we have a sin, and the high priest also has these sins. And this word compassion is interesting. Um, this word compassion in the Greek is the only time used in the whole Bible. And it doesn't mean the same thing up here that we saw with Jesus, who has sympathy, being touched with the feelings. Remember, I said that's sympathio, or sympathetic. This word compassion here that the priest did is one who bears gently the errors of others. It's a moderation of one's anger and grief. So it's not, it, it is compassion, on the ignorant, those who sin unknowingly, unwillingly, and on them that are out of the way, those who have been led astray. For he, that it says, for that he himself also is compassed with infirmity. So it says here that the priest is to gently forbear the errors of others, the sins of others. Like, much like we are with the gifts, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, the fruits of the Holy Spirit, forbearance and gentleness. 
And that's what this is. It's a gentle forbearance that the high priest was to have. This, and it's interesting because the high priest is a man. He could not relate to every situation, every thing, every temptation of the people that he was offering the sacrifices up to, but Jesus can. And it made that different word there in verse 14 of chapter 4, that Jesus really can sympathize with you. Where this priest on earth, he loved you, but he gently forbore you or forbeared you. I don't know what the past tense of forbear is, but um, in verse 2. So um, I, I, I found that interesting. So the relatability of the priest in verse 3, and we figure out why. What is this infirmity? And it's by reason hereof he ought as for the people, so also for himself to offer for sins. And we see that in Leviticus. That is a, an instruction that the priest had to do is that Aaron would go in and offer up uh, the bullocks and offer up a sin offering for himself first. And then he'd take the two goats and the ram. One was for the propitiation of sins, the covering, the atonement, the forgiveness of sins, one of the goats. And then the other goat was a scapegoat. And then he would be set free. That is the picture of the expiation of sin. That's the removal of sin. So one has to deal with guilt. The other has to deal with removal of sin. And then there would be the ram. And so those were the offerings which he was to offer for himself and for others. And you can find that in Leviticus 9. You can find the actual Day of Atonements, all the specifications in Leviticus chapter 16. And in verse 4, but no one chose to take on this office themselves. And, so, and no man taketh this honor unto himself, but he that is called of God, as was Aaron. So God had to call the high priest. No, there wasn't an election. Uh, you know, just anybody couldn't be the high priest. They had to be. We see the order in Leviticus and Exodus chapter 28. That's where God commands. He says, Exodus 28.1, he says, And take thou unto thee Aaron thy brother and his sons with him from among the children of Israel, that he may minister unto me in the priest's office. Then he goes on to say, you don't have to turn there, I won't be there long. Exodus 28.2, And thou shalt make holy garments for Aaron, thy brother, for glory and for beauty. So God is giving glory to the office of the priesthood. And there is, is there's a glory about being the priest, the high priest in the Old Testament. But no man took this honor to himself. It was God who bestowed it. It was God who appointed it. Okay, so here comes verse 5. Now look at all, the, and now we're going to read the hit our comparisons. So also Christ glorified not himself to be made and high priest. But he that said, who is he, God, that said unto him, Thou art my son, today have I begotten thee. Now, we see the humility of Jesus Christ. Jesus did not seek the self-glory here. When Jesus was on earth, he sought the glory of the Father. 
He always sought the glory of the Father. And so we see his humility, his humility, but there's also proof that God has appointed Jesus as his high priest. Now remember who he's writing to. He's writing to the Jews. He's writing to the Hebrews. He's, at this point in time, they're still a high priest. They're in Jerusalem. Right? So he's saying that God hath appointed Jesus as a high priest, just like he appointed Aaron as the high priest. And in Psalm 2-7, he brings in the kingship psalm. Now, the lordship psalm. We've seen this psalm before. Thou art my son, today have I begotten thee. Now, that is speaking, that psalm is talking about the lordship of Jesus Christ. So why would he bring up this psalm here when he's trying to talk about the priesthood of Jesus Christ? Because of the next verse. As he saith also in another place, Psalm 110, Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, who was Melchizedek? Now, there's a bit of an intermission here after verse 10, but he picks up back up in chapter 7, verse 1. Read with me chapter 7, verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, <laughs> he was a king and a priest. He was a priest of the Most High God who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being by interpretation king of righteousness and after that also king of Salem, which is king of peace. That is why he uses these two psalms. The lordship of Jesus Christ and the kingship of Jesus Christ in just these two psalms. Now, Psalm 110, David is looking to a future king. David is prophesying that the king who would come would be after the order of Melchizedek. That the priest to come, I'm sorry, the priest, the high priest, my high priest to come, will be after the order of Melchizedek. Both king and priest. And so it's talking about Jesus' kingly priesthood. In these, and now thou art my son. We've talked about that. Now remember, that verse does not mean that Jesus came into existence. Well, I know we've talked about this verse because he talked about it earlier in Hebrews. And in a lot of these cults, a lot of these places, these false religions will take these, this verse in Psalm 27 and they'll say, oh, you see, the son came into existence because the God the Father begotten him. And that is not what this verse is talking about. Whenever you see this verse, it is talking about the declaration of Jesus as Lord. And when was Jesus or declared to be the Son of God? He was declared to be what he already was. He's always been the Son of God. But in time, Jesus was declared to be so. Do you remember when? At his incarnation... He was declared to be the, sons of, the Son of God at his baptism. God himself declared Jesus to be his Son, to be the eternal God. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. That day he hath begotten him. He had openly declared Jesus to be the Son of God. The Mount Transfiguration, that's the third one, where God came in the clouds and said, This is my beloved Son, hear ye him. 
And then his resurrection. We see Paul reference that in Acts, that he is raised to die no more. And then his ascension. Now, what did he do at his ascension? He has sat down forever on the right hand of the majesty on high, declaring all his kingship. He's the Lord of lords, the king of kings. He is all those things. He has been declared openly to be that. And then in verse 6, yes, he is after the order of Melchizedek because he is our king priest. He is our king. Melchizedek was the king of Salem. And he is our priest. Now, um, also the order of Melchizedek. That doesn't mean that Jesus was in the succession line of Melchizedek. There wasn't a Melchizedek junior or, you know, senior. It, it, it just means that after the same type of office Melchizedek had. So not like Aaron's priesthood, where the order after Aaron where you had that succession. Okay, verse 7, who in the days of his flesh, he's talking about Jesus, he's not talking about Melchizedek. Even though the antecedent of who would be Melchizedek, but he's not talking about him. How do I know that? Because in verse 8, it says, though he were a son. So in verse 7, who in the days of his flesh, Jesus in his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying, and tears unto him, unto God, that was able to save him from death, and was heard in that he feared. Now, verse 7, I've been skipping my notes. Let me get to verse 7. We're going to see something here in verse 7 through 10. Jesus was not only appointed to be the great high priest, but he earned it. Y'all understand that? He earned that position. He qualified to it. How did he qualify to it? First of all, in his humanity. He became human. He became a man. Remember, only the high priest can be a man. Because they must represent man to God. So Jesus became a man in verse 7. When he was in, in the days of his flesh. Secondly... He qualified to it through his obedience and suffering. Jesus was tempted, but he obeyed. He suffered, yet he obeyed. He was perfect. He never sinned. Third, he qualified to that position in his atoning death, his resurrection, and his ascension. So he qualified not only to be our high priest, but the priest after the order of Melchizedek. He's king of kings, lord of lords, and our high priest. He's our access to the throne of God. He's all those things. Now, in verse 7, his humanity comes out. His humanity in that he offered up prayers and supplications. It, and it blows our mind, at least it, it blows mine, I know it blows yours too, how God was all man and all God. He wasn't half God, half man. He wasn't a mixture of the two, like some mythological creature, some Hercules. He was the God-man. He was all man, all God. Now, as a man, we can relate to the man part. What did he do? He prayed. He trusted in God. He had faith in God. He obeyed God. He did what he did to bring glory to God. And he said, not my will, but thy will, God. 
That's what he did as man. We can relate to that because we have faith in God. We're to trust God. We're to obey God. We're to do everything we are to do to the glory of God. But yet he was afflicted with us. I mean, uh, Isaiah, he was afflicted. He was smitten. He was, I mean, stricken. He was despised. All of the, the weight that came upon him. And so in verse 7, it, you know, it says the days of his flesh. Now, we know that Jesus wept. We, we don't have a record of Jesus weeping in the Garden of Gethsemane or on the cross. But just because it's not recorded doesn't mean he didn't. I believe the Lord probably wept out. And I, I do want to come, uh, say verse 7 is more about the Garden of Gethsemane in, in Matthew chapter uh, 26. We don't have time to turn there. But in the Garden of Gethsemane, read it. This perfectly describes what we read there. With strong crying and tears, Jesus went to God, who was able to save him from death. And that, that what it means, and was heard in that he feared. Um, what that means is, and was heard in that he feared or reverenced God. Now, he prayed unto God. Now, we know that he said, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, thy will, not my will. So the weight of humanity was upon Jesus. And I imagine he knew what was, he knew the, the struggle ahead. He knew the pain ahead. He knew the conflict ahead. And it grieved him. And it said that he was heavy of heart when he went into the garden of, of Gethsemane. But, how, but it says that God heard his prayer. But God didn't save him from death. It says that he was able to save him from death and God heard him. The one that he brought in fear and reverence to God. Well, God did save him from death. The resurrection. You're saved from death. We have victory over death. The, you know, it, it, he's won. He's won the battle. And, and it can also mean that, that God calmed the anxieties of Jesus as a whole man, as all man, of what he was about to do. And verse 8, though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. And the humanity is expressed here. Jesus learned obedience through experience. Do we understand that? We do the same thing. We learn obedience through experience. Obedience is putting God's will before yours. You know, and this whole time it's been telling us you can't separate obedience from faith. Just like you can't separate disobedience from unbelief. That there is an obedience, and that's what he's getting ready to say here more in detail. He's able to secure those who obey him. You can't separate faith and obedience. Though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. And you can find more in Philippians 2, 8. I'm going to kind of go a little bit quicker here. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. Called of God, a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now, I want to work with verse 9 for the rest of the time. 
being made perfect, which means Jesus was perfected after his sufferings. Okay. Wasn't Jesus already perfect? Yes. Was he perfect as our high priest, though? Was he perfect before our high priest, before he offered himself up as a sacrifice? Was he perfect as a high priest, as a teenager, as a child? No, he had to learn those things. He had to become our high priest through the sacrifice of himself. And that's what it says, that he being made perfect, he was perfected in his sufferings. Jesus was perfected in the obedience of his sufferings. When he says, nevertheless, not my will, but thy will. That's obedience. Lord, not my will, but thy will. I, this is what I want to do. But Lord, I want to do what you want me to do. That's obedience. And it takes faith to do that, doesn't it? Because you believe the Lord. You believe either they'll, I mean, probably both. There'll be consequences if you do disobey, and there'll be blessings when you do obey. I hope I said that right. I said that so fast. That there'll be consequences if you disobey, and there'll be blessings if you do obey. And that takes faith. But perfected is nine times. And we're going to see that throughout Hebrews. But it means to carry through completion, to accomplish, to finish, to bring to an end, to add what has been wanting in order to render something full and complete. Um, it's used in chapter 2, verse 10. We saw that. We're uh, in exact kind of the same verse. Flip back with me to chapter 2, verse 10. It, it's a lot of ways the same verse. For it became him for whom are all things and by whom are all things in bringing many sons into glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. He was perfected through sufferings. Jesus was already perfect. Like I said, righteousness was for Jesus to lose, not to gain. But through his sufferings and through his obedience, through those things, he became our great high priest. Through his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension, and his sitting down, he has become the king of kings the Lord of Lords. And verse 9, I mean, was he all those things? Yeah, but he became them. And he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. And that's the obedience of faith. That's all who come, upon, or come to him. Jesus, through suffering and finally tasting death for us, was perfected as our high priest. And he presents the office perfect, and he presents us perfect through his high priesthood. Jesus identifies with us, and he saves us. So, therefore, what's the main point? Let us hold fast our profession. Let us hold fast. That child in the pool hugging this parent, let us hold fast. The captain, the author of our salvation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this study. Father, we thank you for your mighty work of grace and mercy. Father, there's just so much. It fills our hearts. Father, may we leave this place meditating upon your love to us, how you relate to us, how you suffer, and Father, how you obey through your suffering that you may be the author of our salvation. 
Father, we love you and thank you, Lord, that we can come to you, that we have full access to your throne of grace when we need help for our Lord and Savior. Father, just as, as we were man, just as we are man and suffering, he can relate to us, but Father, also that he has taken his blood within the veil and that he has applied it, Father, for our forgiveness of sins and for our removal of our guilt. Father, thank you, Lord, for just how wonderful and how splendid you are. Father, we do pray for each heart here. You, you give us the grace as we leave this place for all our needs. And Lord, we know that you will. In Jesus' name, amen.